21. All right there, everyone, and welcome back to Hits 21, where me, Rob, me, Andy, and me, Lizzie, will look back at every single UK number one of the 21st century from January 2000 right through to the present day. If you want to get in touch with us, you can find us over on Twitter. We are at Hits21UK. That is at Hits21UK. We have a nice pink avatar. Very easy to spot. And you can email us as well. You can send it over to Hits21Podcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much for joining us again. It is a relief to know that our first episode didn't put you off. Uh, <laughs> Just like last week, we're going to be looking back at five UK number one singles from the year 2000. This time, we'll be covering the period from the 20th of February of that year up to April Fool's Day. Before we get going, Lizzie, Andy, since we last spoke, have either of you done anything cool and hip happening in the music world since we last sat down? Uh, I, haven't um, done, I haven't done anything oh, hip oh. and happening. Um, I've tuned my piano. <laughs> oh, is this the one that you uh, the one that you bought? I say bought. I got it basically for free. I just had to transport it. Facebook Marketplace is a wonderful thing. Not that we're sponsored by them or anything. I don't mean like that. But uh, yeah, <laughs> I happened to come into possession of a, a a piano at least 120 years old. We reckon it's around 120 years old. Uh, but it needs wow. tuning every couple of weeks. Um, it's it's an absolute ball lake to look after. But it's my little baby. Well, my not so little baby. Um, my, my rather large baby. Yeah, so, but that's all really, yeah. Lizzie, what about you? Um, well, for this week I was on Apple Music and now I'm back on Spotify because, um, you know, for this episode I did have to listen to American Pie by Madonna quite a lot and it had a habit of sort of recommending me, like, similar songs which I really didn't want to listen to. Like, I don't know if there's more... 80s starlets doing covers of 70s folk rock songs. Maybe Cindy Lauper does Horse with No Name. I've not found, I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, I'm I'm back on the dark side now. Hello, Joe Rogan, if you're listening. I'm also on the dark side. <laughs> Speaking of Spotify, you just reminded me, there, there is one other cool music thing that I've done this week. Um, I don't know if you guys have done it too. That This will date our episode, by the way, but uh, you can generate an automatic Stranger Things style playlist to what you would escape from the monsters from, what your power-up music is, based on your listening. <laughs> right. Gives you a playlist. Okay. My, my, my number one, my running up that hill equivalent is Rocket to the Moon by RuPaul. That's me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, wouldn't that surprise Vecna, eh? <laughs> it was um, surprising, yeah. <laughs> As for myself, um, the day after we recorded... The first episode went all the way down to London and I saw Amel and the Sniffers support Weezer, support Fall Out Boy, support Green Day. Nice, and that was nice. good fun. Um, I was way, way at the back of the London Stadium, but it was a good it was a good evening anyway. And then the day before we recorded this episode, so last night, I went and saw Slater, uh, Manchester Gorilla, and that was a really terrific show where I was also at the back, but it was a quite a tiny venue. It was a gorilla, and she's a really, really terrific performer. And the crowd were with her the whole way. Um, loudest crowd I think I've ever been with. Um, nice. Just by how my ears felt afterwards. Um, and actually, you know, nothing to do with um, the music itself. My ears weren't ringing after the gig. There was just this period where Catherine, who's uh, Slater's real name, 
um, she took a second just to kind of gather herself after a song and the the cheering just went on and on and on for so long and she couldn't there's footage of it around you know Instagram Twitter YouTube places like that she can't quite take it all in I think she's quite amazed and yeah so whenever she comes back to the UK after this current tour she's doing um I highly recommend going seeing her she's a it's a proper good laugh I think I got the tickets last minute and it was uh yeah really really uh, terrific fun oh excellent thanks for the tip excellent yeah yeah all right then on to this week's episode just as we did last week we are going to give you some news headlines that occurred during the period that we're going to be covering on this episode just to kind of put you back in that place if only temporarily so uh, in russia vladimir putin has just been elected as the country's second president succeeding boris yeltsin while the uk has extradited augusto pinochet back to his native chile to face trial for human rights abuses one of the moors murderers myra hindley lodges a high court appeal to have her life sentence reduced but has her appeal rejected in america george bush and al gore have emerged victorious from the republican and democratic primaries meaning that they will go head to head in the u.s presidential election in november And in pop culture, Pixar's Toy Story 2, my favourite film of all time, is currently number one at the UK box office where it's going to stay for seven weeks. And for seven weeks, the British public were very right with that one. Former Take That star Robbie Williams ends his brief friendship with Liam Gallagher by challenging him to a televised fight at the 2000 Brit Awards, a ceremony that Liam Gallagher does not attend unfortunately for us all. (laughs) And speaking of the 2000 Brit Awards, in news that's relevant to this week's episode, Jerry Halliwell performs her new solo single, Bag It Up, and does not join the Spice Girls on stage to accept the group's Outstanding Contribution Award. Drama. Scandal. And on April 1st, the kids' cartoon TV channel Boomerang hits the air for the first time in America, and it broadcasts episodes of Tom and Jerry, The Smurfs, Looney Tunes... And Scooby-Doo. Um, I spent many, many Friday afternoons at my grandma's watching Boomerang. I used this to point. love yeah, Boomerang. Loved it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. What's new Scooby-Doo with a meringue and a bowl of cream? That was my Friday <laughs> Friday afternoon treat after school. What's new Scooby-Doo <laughs> with its uh, theme song by Simple Plan? Simple Plan, <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> uh, Lizzie, you've got some news from across the pond. I have, yeah. So we're covering the period uh, late February 2000 to um, April Fool's Day, I want to say. Yeah, yeah. So over in America, the Billboard number one singles for this period are as follows. We have One Week of Thank God I Found You by Mariah Carey featuring Joe and 98 Degrees. Featuring Joe. Have, just Joe. Just Joe. <laughs> just Joe. Hi, Joe. Hi, Joe. <laughs> and then we have One Week of I Knew I Loved You by Savage Garden, which is a re-entry after three previous weeks at number one. And then following that, we have two weeks of Amazed by Lone Star, and finally, three weeks of Say My Name by Destiny's Child. Tune. Tune. Yeah, definite tune. Yeah. In the UK albums charts, uh, we have Gabrielle still at number one with Rise, until being knocked off by Oasis's Standing on the Shoulder of Giants for one week. <laughs> followed by two weeks of Travis's The Man Who. 
And then Santana scored a number one album with Supernatural on the week of 26th of March. And over in America, in their album's charts, Voodoo by D'Angelo, great album, still at number one, before being overtaken by, again, Santana's Supernatural for six weeks, from the end of February to the first week of April. All right, Lizzie, thank you very much for your United States report. Yeah. That's a, an addition to this week's episode that I think we'll carry on with because I always kind of like knowing just sort of, you know, just sort of being told like, oh, that was happening at the same time as this and oh, isn't that strange? History doesn't happen in a vacuum. And the UK albums charts as well will be sticking around. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. All right, then it's time to get on to this week's selection of number one singles. And the first one for this week is this. Of course, it is Pure Shores by All Saints. This was released as the lead single from All Saints' second album, Saints and Sinners, and as the lead single for the soundtrack to Danny Boyle's The Beach. Uh, Pure Shores is the group's fourth number one single after Never Ever, Under the Bridge double A side with Lady Marmalade and Booty Call each hit the summit in the late 90s. This was number one for two weeks. It knocked Oasis, go let it out, off the top spot, and it beat competition from Gabrielle's Rise, which we covered last week. The Artful Dodgers, Romina, uh, the Artful Dodger and Romina Johnson's Moving Too Fast, which is a, a bit of a shame, because that's a good song. It's a shame that they were released in the same week, I mm. think, because I think they would have both been worthy number ones. And What A Girl Wants, uh, Christina Aguilera's follow-up to Genie In A Bottle. When Pure Shores was knocked off number one, it fell to number two, and by the time it left the charts, it had been there for 19 weeks. And not to give away how I feel about it too much, but those 19 weeks must have been a wonderful 19 weeks <laughs> uh, for the for the UK. So, Andy, I'm going to come to you first on this one. Oh, I love where you. Where do you stand? <laughs> where, where, where do you stand on Pure Shores? Well, this is right. So this is a sort of I want to say recent, but I don't mean that recent, like about five years or so, a rediscovery of mine. Because when I was younger, I didn't listen to All Saints at all. They they just they, they just sort of passed me by. They weren't really my thing. Um, and I, I'm not, I'm still not that huge on All Saints in general, but this song just came on about five years ago. And I was like, whoa, 
whoa, this is good. How did I not notice how good this is? And since then, I listened to it, like, weekly, probably. <laughs> like, this was, like, the second or third time I'd listened to it this week when this came on. I absolutely adore this song, and I might say it's probably one of my favourite songs from the early noughties, full stop. Uh, I really can't overstate how lovely this song is. I think the real star of it is the production. I think that's what really is the key ingredient, is that it's it manages to be mellow and sort of a banger at the same time. That it has this lovely sweet spot where it's got lovely, lovely, quiet, little bubbly synth sounds in the background, but it is also incredibly satisfying to listen to. It's just, it's so well put together as a song. It sounds so gorgeous. And it's just so sort of offbeat. It's so different to usual kind of girl band material. I think that's all Saints in general really, is that they tend to do things that are a little bit more contemplative, a little bit more sort of long form ideas. And I just think this really, really stands out as something a little bit different, something that sounds a bit different, that has quite a lot of imagination put into it, that really, really rises above and is one of the stars of this moment in time for me. So as you can probably tell, I quite like it. <laughs> yeah. The few specific things, though, that I really want to shout out. Um, I'm going to be coming back to this a lot. Rob, I know I've had this conversation with you before, that for me, one of the key things that elevates any pop song from being a really good song to actual, actual greatness is a really great bridge. And I think this one is excellent. One of my favourite parts of the songs is that bridge that, I'm coming, I'm drowning. That's... Yeah. Oh, lovely just when it might start to ebb away a little bit when it might start to overstay its welcome it does something different and it really comes to life and gives an extra burst of energy um i absolutely love it it's an absolutely marvelous song um and the only other thing i wanted to mention with your shores well i could talk about it all day but i'm keeping it relatively brief one other thing i wanted to mention is that it's quite interesting that this knocked oasis off the number one spot because around this time, Liam Gallagher and Nicole Appleton from All Saints got together and they eventually got married the year after this. So interesting, they knocked no Oasis way. off the top. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Well, that I didn't know. Yeah. And I reckon at least half of our listeners won't know that either. Well, so they were, it was a sort you. of. It, they were quite a sort of A list couple for a while. I've, I've looked it up and they were together for about. Well, they were. They were oh, no, they didn't marry until. 2008 but they had a child in 2001 so they were together for well they got divorced in 2014 they were together for 13 years um liam gallagher and nicole appleton yeah the song songbird by oasis is about nicole appleton from all saints yeah that i didn't wow two big factoids that i just had (laughs) no idea like you know big moments in pop culture history have completely passed me by there until you (laughs) seized them and gave them to me so thank you very much for that yeah um and thank you very much for your thoughts about pure shores as well lizzie i'll hand the mic to you um are you as as equally elated that we're covering pure shores and as equally in love with it as andy is yeah, and that makes it very difficult to talk about. It's like, I don't know, it's like talking about your favourite child and why they're your favourite. It's like, how do you put that into words? But, yeah, it is a, it's a beautiful record. It's the first of two appearances from William Orbit this week. More on that later. Yeah. And, yeah, it's, it's incredible that I don't think William Orbit was a huge fan of this. I'm sure that in interviews around the time, he 
pretty much dismissed it. He said, you know, it took months and it was, I don't know, it just didn't turn out how he wanted it. And it's only about 20 years later that he kind of reconciled that, okay, maybe it's quite good. But it's incredible. And to think that, like All Saints as well, they were in not a great place with each other at the time. Like, um, we'll see All Saints again later in the year, but they split up about a year after this. And I think, I do remember reading, I think it was Chazney Lewis said that um, one of the catalysts for them splitting up was an argument over a jacket in a photo shoot. So that's where the band is at at this point. It's pretty kind of tense. I don't think any of them really wants to be doing it anymore, but the fact that they came together to create something as gorgeous as this just yeah it's incredible um Mm. and i think i was gonna do that sort of wanky thing where it's like this feels like the first true number one of the 21st century (laughs) but it's like it feels so perfectly within that like you know that late 90s and specifically 2000 period where everything felt kind of limitless it at least in the West anyway, it felt like there was this period of relative calm and everything had, you know, all the dust had been settled and there was a sense of optimism and Mm. what, you you know, you could look over a distant shore and you could see the world in front of you. And because of that, I don't think this could have come out at any other time because obviously a year after this, it feels like the walls start to, close in a little bit and it kind of gives it this melancholic effect to me because yeah it it doesn't feel like we'll ever get that kind of time mood back i'm sorry that's a really bad way of fussing it but i get it though because i I also completely get this yeah 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 Yeah. because with the advent of the internet and the fact that we were really learning how to you know we, we'd kind of spent the 90s really learning how to use the internet and now that we'd kind mm. of ex- you know we were experts in it so we thought and so a lot of the major kind of political stuff um that had gone through the 80s and 90s felt like it was kind of you know not over necessarily but there was a period of relative calm they were yeah. still kind of feeling the the one thing I, I would like to notice um i would like to look out for rather over the course of the 20 year period that we're going to cover is how many british artists are in the charts now compared to the year 2000 because yeah it does feel like there's still the little dregs of cool britannia just kind of you know we're still in blair's first term at this point we've not quite mm. hit that Boy in the Corner, original pirate material, first season of Peep Show kind of hangover yet. We're still kind of in that, like you say, specifically 2000, um, late 90s, year 2000 kind of, you know, oh, we're in a new millennium. What's, you know, what's coming ahead of us? And yeah, I think with Pure Shores, there is this kind of, to me, I guess to just kind of go into my thoughts about it, I don't know why, but it feels like something the kind of music that they would play over footage of time lapses time lapses of traffic and clouds and <laughs> vistas and things like that there's just something that it feels like a, a an aeroplane that's kind of hit maximum height and speed and it's just kind of drifting cutting through the clouds it's mood isn't music, that just isn't the it? video to ray of light that you <laughs> yes. oh it is the video to ray of light yes i yes another um, william orbit jam yeah 
Another, yes, exactly. Um, but it does, it feels like something travelling through the air. There is, it floats really, really nicely until, Andy, you yeah. say that bridge section yeah. when it comes in and those really overproduced guitars come in to give it mm. that boomph about two-thirds of the way through. And this is what I meant um, last week when I was talking about, I think it was during the chat about the Manics, where you want your emotional climaxes to come late rather than early because then you spend two and a half minutes looking forward to something, you get that emotional climax, and then the last chorus is like the come down and it's a nice kind of, you know, it gives you a nice kind of soft landing as it enters mm. that, it enters its final stages. Um, this is the my, I don't know about you two, but this is my first nomination for the Hits 21 vault. I would I also agree. agree. Yep. Yeah. So... Yep. As we kind of explained last week, The Vault is where we're going to put all the songs that we think are particularly special. And then when we come to the end of the year or end of the show, we'll look back and say, okay, these were in The Vault. Let's decide between them for our absolute favourites. Um, this is the first song we've covered so far that I think I actually feel nostalgic for. I actually have memories of this nothing clear but you know memory it puts me in a time it doesn't put me in a specific room or house or on a particular road or park or anything like that it just kind of puts me in the mindset of being five years old and just kind of learning about things um yeah same if i would say that if i was 28 in the year 2000 and i had the level of interest in all kinds of music that i do now and you told me that the guy who produced ray of light for madonna and had just released like a covers album of like loads of modern classical songs and stuff was going to come and produce a couple of singles for the group who did never ever and booty call i'd be like oh yeah i'm well up for this and yeah i am well up for it I, it has that instant that that keeps repeating it's i think he william orbit he also uses that in frozen doesn't he by madonna that's right yeah two or three years earlier um no idea what sound it is but all the production is so beautiful and futuristic and it's warm and it's tranquil and it's breezy um and then even away from the production i know that um he wrote this in collaboration with chasnay lewis from All Saints, but it has that great chorus melody that you... I think that's also something that happens with the single that All Saints come up with next, where you have mm. all these interesting ideas going on in the production that a bit of a, a music nerd, a bit of a obsessive headphone listener could really get into. But then if you play it, you get in the car and you just turn the radio on and you've got, I'm moving, I'm coming, can you hear what I hear? It's just, it's so instant with that. Um, and then it builds towards that massive explosion, that big bridge section, like you were saying, Andy. It feels like the first two and a half minutes are just build up for that, I'm moving, I'm coming, or whatever it is that they say. And it's just this sudden shift of mood, it's this sudden shift of emotion. Mm. Um, I think this is, and I, I don't use this word much because I feel like it's a bit overused, but I do think this is genuinely an iconic pop song i think yeah. it is representative mm. of an entire period of pop music and it should have been number one for weeks and it feels like it was number one for weeks and weeks and weeks and to know that it was only like a short period at number one it's really i think it's indicative of how fast the chart moves in this year because there are so many number ones in the year 2000 i think there's over 40 yeah which yeah. is like yeah. nearly one a week so 
yeah, it's somehow, you know, managing to stay at the top for two weeks is a big achievement. I think, like, a modern-day equivalent is probably something like the Charlie XCX Vroom Vroom EP that she did with Sophie. I mean, it was nowhere near as successful, but what I mean is, like, a big name from pop music working with a forward-thinking electronic producer. Um, funnily enough, ironically, Sophie had already worked with Madonna, just as William Orbit had worked with Madonna just before he um, came to All Saints. Um, it's two worlds colliding, I think. Um, William Orbit coming from a co completely different background to All Saints and the, the clash is, is really, really beautiful. The only markdown I have, and it's like 0.5 out of 10 markdown kind of material, is just that whenever I hear the mop, 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 I, I can't get it out of my head. It's like, you've kind of used this trick before, but yeah. it it's I, I just class it as an interpolation, so it's not a huge huge problem for me but well it's like a dub yeah. thing isn't it because he only plays that one note and it's just reverberated he doesn't like yeah. play the the keyboard note four times over does he no but, no exactly. and like I, I just did want to note something about the bridge because you made me think you know how it goes into like that overdrive it's a similar sort of thing with um coffee and tv which uh mm -hmm. william orbit also produced and does a similar thing where it's quite smooth and you know gently going but then you get into that graham cox and like really discordant solo and yeah, it's, it's yeah very it, similar it you know it, it elevates uh, the song from just good to okay this is genuinely brilliant yeah. and again it's a it's a trick you've done before but you do it in a different way hmm. and yeah. yeah i think without that bridge section this song would be i don't know maybe a seven but yeah, it just it needed that one thing to take it over the hill, and that does it. Mm. Just one more, one more thing for me. Uh, I, just because you were saying, Rob, that this felt like it was number one for longer than it was. It felt like it was a bigger moment than it was. I think there is some substance to that because I'm just looking that it, it ended up as the second highest selling song in the UK of 2000. Um, mm. And it oh. ended up remarkably as the 27th highest selling song of the whole decade in the UK. Um, oh, wow. So it was very, very, very successful. Yeah, it, it See, stuck around for a long time. Yeah. Sometimes the British public just gets it right. Eh? <laughs> and sometimes they sometimes. don't. See you in 2016. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, next up is this. used to make me smile and I knew that if I had my chance I could make those people dance and maybe they'd be happy for a
Yes, this is of course Madonna's cover of Don McLean's American Pie. This was released as a standalone single in order to promote her upcoming movie, The Next Best Thing. Uh, anybody no, remember that? No, <laughs> no, no. Yeah. Um, Ooh, I have a side note about that, but I'll come to it in a minute. Okay, yeah, no problem. Um, it's a 50th UK single overall and a massive ninth number one hit as well. Don McLean himself has celebrated this version and has called it a gift from a goddess. It eventually appeared on a 2016 reissue of her album Music, the original edition of which ends up being uh, released later this year. It was number one for just a week, knocking All Saints off the top spot and holding off competition from NSYNC's Bye Bye Bye. When it was knocked off the summit after seven days there, it dropped to number two, and by the time it left the chart, it had racked up 18 weeks inside the top 100. Lizzie. Yeah. Your thoughts on American Pie, Madonna's version? Well, um, I did promise a little side note about the next best thing. <laughs> it yeah. was it was directed by John Schlesinger, most famous for directing Midnight Cowboy in 1969, which went on to win multiple Oscars, including Best Picture and Best Director. The next best thing was his final film before his death in 2003, Oh, no. And it was nominated for four Razzies, of which Madonna won one Ooh. for Worst Actress. Oh. This oh. is this is Madonna's acting era, isn't it? So, yeah. She was yeah. around a lot of this time. Yeah. Certainly is. Um, yeah, this your is... Your thoughts um, on the song, Lizzie? Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? This is two number ones in a row for the same producer with two different artists. I did wonder if that's ever happened before. I will do some research and get back to you. There's a chance that maybe Timberland in the mid 2000s may have a yeah, shout maybe. at that. Maybe. But yeah, I'm, I'm gonna go and I'm gonna go through and have a look at that. Maybe yeah. Calvin Harris as well. Yeah, that's a shout actually. Mm. Mm. Okay, yeah. But yeah, talk about going from an apex to an adir, or if we're talking orbits, the perihelion <laughs> and aphelion in that order. <laughs> <laughs> I, very I niche, Lizzie, but very good. I know. <laughs> yeah, one of my science pals out there. Um, I don't like the original American Pie either. It's, you know, maybe the best thing about this cover version is that it at least had the common sense to not cover the full eight and a half minute version. But yeah, I, th I feel like it's as weird in 1971 as it is in 2000 to have this song about the music of the past and how all oh, the good times are gone and it's all over and st the day the music died and I think this period of Madonna where she's going into this like um, how would you describe it it's like country western mixed with hip hop but it still feels like a bit of a cop out somehow yeah that album cover does not fit with its lead single aesthetically at no, all no it doesn't not one bit yeah very very strange yeah. and i always i do find it a bit of a cop-out when artists go back to that kind of americana like we've seen it recently with like miley cyrus for example where mm. she went really deep into hip-hop and even psychedelia for a couple of years and then 
I think it was 2017, 2018. Yeah, with uh, Malibu. I'm I'm a true American, red, white, and blue. Like, no, this is just cheap. It's pandering. And it doesn't really mean anything to people outside of the US. Although, you know, this got to number one, okay. But, yeah, I think that's more the strength of Madonna's name than the strength of this single, because this is not a good single. Andy? Right, so I don't dislike this as much as Lizzie does, and I'm guessing as much as you do, Rob, although you haven't said yet, I'm guessing you don't really like this either. Um, no, I don't. And I, I, I Don't get me wrong, <laughs> I'm not a fan of this. It would get a thumbs down from me. Um, but I'm not as harsh on it. I, I think how you feel about this largely depends on how you feel about the original. That, that sort of, it, whatever that relationship you have with the original version of this song kind of gives you a jumping off point for this because it's very different but also it's a song that is already very divisive to begin with in that some people find it extremely boring like I, I just as a litmus test I asked my husband to listen to this in the car as well and he said oh I prefer this like the original is really boring this is better it gives it some life he actually liked this so if you really don't like the original you might actually prefer this because it is at least very different or if you don't like the original like you did Lizzie it might mean that you're just not into this song altogether and it's not worth trying yeah for me I am not a big fan of the original but it does have some little moments of genius. I like the idea of it. I, I like the idea of, of the lyrics and what the story is that it's telling. And I love the um, that little chord that it lands on, on the this'll be the day that I die. I do think that's just a lovely, lovely little moment. Um, just a, a nice musical idea. So I don't mind listening to the song, but why did she do this? Why did she do this? I don't really understand, of all songs, why she chose this. Um... This era of Madonna in general is not one of my favourites. Um, she, perhaps more than any other artist I can think of, has very clearly defined eras in history that you can break down quite easily. And I'm a much, much bigger fan of the Ray of Light era and most of what she did in the 90s I really like. Mm. And the 80s, obviously, you know, superb. But this, weirdly, this was actually a probably a bigger peak for her commercially than Ray of Light was. Music, the single music, I mean, was was a really big hit. Even though that song I don't like at all. This era is not to my taste, really. Um, but she was just sort of doing whatever she liked. She was throwing everything at the wall. You know, there was lots and lots of different sorts of songs and different sorts of ideas. And from what I've read about this, she was sort of talked into it. She just sort of thought, oh, why the hell not? Let's just do this as well. And I think that speaks volumes that, you know, there is a point at which you need to edit yourself and think, should I really be releasing this cover of American Pie? Is there anything I can actually add to this? The answer was no. Basically, there wasn't anything she could add to it. Um, and I think part of the reason for that, part of the problem, is those lyrics, like you said, Lizzie, that they are very, they're telling a very personal, very specific story that you really did have to be there. <laughs> it's not yeah. something you can yeah. recreate if you weren't there at the time. It's when you're talking about the day the music died and it's particularly the the way that the lyrics dig into it, so in much in terms of the particular emotions that it that it produced in Don McLean, it's something that you cannot recreate if if you're a different generation talking about it in an abstract way. It's something that Madonna just can't possibly share as a point of view. So it's inauthentic and it's throwaway and it's tacky. But I quite like 
the the sound of it. I quite like the production on it. I, I think it is a little sort of heresy to do that to a song like <laughs> American Pie, but I don't mind it that much. I don't think it completely walks on its grave in the way that some people do. I think it's it's okay, and I will genuinely give it a mark for not being as long as the original, for cutting out, I think, like seven out of the 11 verses it cuts out. Um, small mercies, eh? But it's not that long. <laughs> so I'm down on it, but I think it could have been worse, and I think it's just a poor choice of song, and she executes it perfectly fine, I think. So, yeah. And we definitely get worse from Madonna in the years to come. Absolutely we do. Yeah, this is not even in the worst five of, of recent no. years. Yeah, no. no way. Yeah. yeah. Rob, how about well, you? Well, yeah, so one thing I'll say at the start that I quite like about the song is that it adds a new melody the um, the synth lead at the beginning the as kind of weird as it is i just you know it, at least they've not just done a straight cover like you know they've tried to reinterpret it kind of you know there's a that do 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 or whatever it is like fine um hmm so william orbit coming back to produce madonna sounds great uh oh uh I think the production sounds okay. It's a bit flat for me. Um, the, the the weird kind of backing vocals that are kind of shoved into the furthest right and left parts of, of your ears, like yeah. very, very unusual effect that I had while I was listening to it. I was just kind of, I think I was sat on a, I was coming back from Manchester on a train when I was listening to this and I was like, what on earth is going on here? And I was like, oh, it's the backing vocalist. Um, yeah, okay, I think this is really horrible. Um, <laughs> so, can I suggest that we have something, like, that's the opposite of The Vault? Like, that represents, like, the worst of the songs that we listen to? Or our least yeah. favourite of the ones that we listen to? We'll call it, like, The Pit or something. We'll maybe come up with a better name. But anyway, I would like to put this song in it. Um, we can argue the virtues of whether it deserves to be there or not after, if you want to, but... So, the, the the original, um, like it or lump it, whether you think it's a gorgeous epic song with a great story or if it's just a, a boomer complaining about how much the modern world sucks, um, a lot goes into it. Um, I'm, I'm personally, I'm, I'm in the former camp, I actually really like um, the original. Um, I don't, I'm not that affectionate towards it or defensive of it, it's just that whenever it's on... Um, I get kind of lost in the story, you know, I don't necessarily know if it's specifically about a guy complaining just about the music. I mean, they definitely know all the characters that turn up, like um, Bob Dylan, and obviously the whole song is about Buddy Holly and stuff like that, you know. But I think it goes a little further than that. It's just that it kind of tells the story of a guy who realises, you know, he's reached the end of the most important and most exhausting decade in modern Western history, I think. And life hasn't quite turned out how he'd hoped, and he considers the death of Buddy Holly to be the moment where everything kind of started going wrong for him. Uh, you know, it's a bitter and a sad story about a guy who realises that he kind of blinked and then his childhood was over, and his optimism was stolen, and there was all this turmoil in the 60s, and obviously there's a huge identity crisis uh, for America after um, Kennedy was assassinated, and then after Martin Luther King, and then Bobby Kennedy getting shot, and so, you know, it's very, very panicky, paranoid nation um, at, at the beginning of the 70s compared to where they were at the end of the 50s. Mm. Amazing show, uh, Mad Men tells that story beautifully. 
it's a very exhausted and lengthy sigh taken at the end of the 60s. And it's one of the most progressive and regressive decades, I think, in, in modern history. In over eight minutes, you're taken through heaps of metaphors and environments and periods of history. Uh, the music speeds up and slows down and increases and decreases in volume and size. It's, it, it's imperfections are left there, like how McLean kind of sounds a bit pitchy in that first verse while his voice is warming up, uh, like he's just started banging away on a piano and singing in the corner of a pub somewhere. Um, and then by the time you reach the end of that song, you really, I feel like I've been taken somewhere on a journey. And then when he says, Father, Son and Holy Ghost caught the last train for the coast, the way he sings it, it's as if whatever story that he's been telling and whatever story they were part of has ended. And they're going home now. They're, they're going away. They've caught the last train. It's gone. There's no way to catch them. It's all over. And it earns its runtime, I think, to the point where removing literally any verse kind of ruins the overall effect of the song. So, of course, Madonna comes in, cuts out, as you say, Andy, seven of the 11 verses, reduces the story to, like, bullet points, and takes all the changes of tempo out of it, all the character, everything that makes the song feel like a story, adds in a bunch of late 90s gimmicky production, which I really didn't like about the Westlife stuff. Like, I don't know what makes it feel so flat to me. Like, I love Madonna. I think she's terrific. Pop icon, string of amazing songs. Never going to question her ability as a singer, but when I was playing this out loud and taking notes and stuff, my partner, she had to ask who's this? <laughs> and I think that yeah. kind of says everything that you need to know. It is quite nondescript. I will, I will give you that. Um, yeah. I, yeah. Here's a random, really, really random factoid for you here. Uh, you know, when you're talking about those strange backing vocals, were you talking about the male backing vocals that appear? Yeah, the, the male backing vocals so, in the far right and left of the mix. Bizarrely, those vocals are done by Rupert Everett, the actor, who is in The Next Best Thing with Madonna. You may know him as Prince Charming from Shrek 2. Oh, he God. does the backing ah. vocals. <laughs> and so yeah. it really, okay. really was a proper vehicle for... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, for the film. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Um, I've I've got to like second you on the um the production feeling flat and it's like coming off what Madonna had done previously where I could think of three hits from like nineteen ninety eight and ninety nine of hers that all sound completely different. You know, Ray of Light is just that head rush of you know, like it's that like you said, like a jet taking off. Yeah. Like just mm, yeah. going full speed, hundred miles an hour, no way of stopping, and then you get that calm period, and then it's like back to the rush. And then you've got Frozen, which is this sort of gothic, it's almost like a dirge, but it's so like frosty and yeah, and cold and beautiful. I love that record. And also um, Beautiful Stranger, where it's got this vintage fuzz to it. I love that song. I'm always, always telling people to give that a go. I love that song so much. Yeah. Yeah, if you're you're hearkening back to that late 60s, early 70s period, that's how to do it, because this... Yeah, like you say, the production just sounds flat and even go back to the original record. You know, from that same year, you've got What's Going On by Marvin Gaye. You've got Ball of Confusion by The Temptations. Just better protest songs that fit it into a much shorter amount of time and yet say Mm. so much more. 
than what American Pie does. Yeah. yeah, I have to say, Rob, I really disagree with you about the length of the song. I do think it is a genuine improvement to cut some of the verses. I, I really don't think any song justifies being as long as the original does. I don't think, I just really disagree with you on that, um, I have to That's say. That's fair enough, yeah. I, yeah. I mean, to be honest, I've said my piece. If I was to yeah. argue back and say, well, hang on, I would only be repeating <laughs> what, I've, what I've already said. The so, only, the only yeah, thing if we're talking pop songs, yeah. The only other thing, I, so are we going to have rules about the pit? About is it majority rule? Because I'm going to say no. I don't think it's that bad. I I don't want to nominate it for the pit. <laughs> but if it's majority rule, then we'll see. Yeah. I think it probably should be like the vault where it is majority rule, and also we That's should fair. name it after this song and call it the pie hole. <laughs> <laughs> but that's just my opinion, you know. If you want to stick it in the pie hole, as it very much were, if you want to stick it in the pie hole, then okay. Well, when we come to look at the pie hole uh, at the end of the year 2000, uh, <laughs> it, 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 won't, it won't be bottom of the list. You know, it won't be like the absolute worst one in there, Andy, because you'll, I think you'll pull it back from, uh, from the edge and make sure that it, it, it may be in the pie hole, but maybe not at the, the foot of it. <laughs> Well, I, I didn't think this was the hill I was going to die on, to be honest. But yeah, fair enough. I'll stick up for Madge. Yeah. <laughs> it would be a shame for it not to be in the thing it's named after. But yes, that, it would be a strange name if American Pie wasn't in there. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I found another pie-related song. <laughs> All right then, moving on. Our next number one is this. Don't get it up. Okay, this is Don't Give Up by Chicane and Brian Adams. This was released as the second single from Chicane's album, Behind the Sun. It is Chicane's first and only UK number one to date. However, Brian Adams, it's his second chart topper after everything I do, I do it for you, had a run of 16 weeks at number one back in 1991. This was number one for just a week, knocking Madonna off the summit by selling just over a thousand copies more than her rendition of American Pie, and it also held off some competition from Tom Jones and Stereophonics, Mama told me not to come. Uh, while it was, uh, sorry, when it was knocked off number one, it dropped to number three, and by the time it fell out of the charts, it had been there for 14 weeks. 
Andy. Uh, first of all, that was a great Tom Jones. Very much enjoyed yeah. that. Yes. Not bad. Yeah. Can you yeah. can you well sing American me. Pie in the style of Tom Jones? I'd, I'd enjoy that. <laughs> uh, I'll work on it for next week. <laughs> Look forward to that. Um, so if I may submit my thoughts in writing for this one, it's just going to be a shrug emoji. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I really... This is... The definition of a generic dance track for me. Well, uh, maybe that's been a little bit harsh because it's not just purely, you know, ten-minute Cubase, you know, thing. But it is pretty generic. It's it's uh, the only reason I can think of of why it would have got number one is Brian Adams was was you know was Andy is a pretty big name to get on a song like this. Um, I don't think he's necessary at all. He he doesn't really have that much to do in the song. Um, yeah, I'm a bit befuddled by this, to be honest. I was really quite bored listening to it. There's nothing wrong with it, but I'm really puzzled as to why anybody would go out and buy the single for this. Like, it's, it, I can definitely see it as the sort of thing that would come on in, in the club, as it were, that would that would come on and you dance to it, but to actually buy it and to get it to number one, that, that seems strange to me. Um, I, I was reading about some of the critical reception just to see if there was something I was missing with this. And one thing that was pointed out that I really do agree with is that it, it is actually, the idea is a little bit ahead of its time of combining EDM with a famous male guest star would be quite a big thing in in the 2010s. You know, sort of Avicii, Calvin Harris, mm. that sort of thing. That would happen a lot. But it's weird to imagine that with the very noughties production that it has here, the very noughties production, very turn of the millennium. I was sort of getting a bit of Daft Punk in the kind of you know, the general sort of style they were going for, but very much inferior to Daft Punk. Um, it was fine. It was just a fine. It was a solidly fine piece of music. Um, does anyone else have anything more enlightening to say? Because I've said everything I could possibly say about Don't Give Up by Chicane featuring Brian Adams. Oh, I've got a fair bit. <laughs> okay, go I for could, it. I could give it a go. Like, I'm not a big Brian Adams fan at the best of times. Like I was I was somewhat surprised to learn that this is his only second number one, given that I somehow misremembered Summer of 69 being UK number one, but it, it only peaked at number 42 in 1985. Mm. I also would have thought that... I also would have thought that When You're Gone would have got to number one as well. I'm quite surprised that didn't make it to number one. Mm. Yeah. Was that after this? No, that was the 90s. Yeah, definitely the 90s, oh. yeah. Yeah. But yeah, like Summer of 69, it's another song about the past, you know, another song about nothing masquerading as a song about something, carried only by Brian honking and screeching his way through that Reagan core production. And yeah, I do hold a grudge against Brian Adams for holding the charts hostage for 16 weeks in the summer of 1991 with open brackets, everything I do, close brackets, I do it for you. <laughs> yeah, say what, you like about chill- Ameri- say what you like about American Pie, but at least it didn't go on for 16 weeks. Yeah, Jesus <laughs> Christ. And I'll tell you what it, did, what it did, though, it doomed children of my generation to all have the same number one when they were born, including <laughs> me. Yeah, um, I'm Bastard. 1994, summer 94, so I'm love is all around, wet, wet, wet. I'm summer 92, I'm... and I'm rhythm is a dancer. Oh, yeah. you, you win in, that in my case, it was In my case, it was Brian Adams with Everything I Do, or I'm Too Sexy by Right Said Fred <laughs> at number two, which is a, a real Sophie's choice of shit singles by shit people. But, <laughs> yeah, anyway, the song, okay. 
Um, like Brian Adams has got this effect on his voice, which I think is meant to tone down some of that rockiness. You know, the, the that horsey does. kind of. Yeah. yeah. But it just sounds like it's been played underwater. Like, you know, when you get like yes. a low bitrate MP3 from LimeWire or something, it's like, yeah. oh, yeah, it's only like 200 kilobytes. That would be great. And it's just, yeah, it's got that horrible effect. And the backing track is pleasant enough, but doesn't stick in the memory. It sounds like menu music from a PlayStation 1 racing game, like <laughs> Colin McRae Rally or Le Mans 24 Hours. And like the name chicane lends itself a bit too well to that connection maybe yeah you know i could i could um, bet that this is in fifa somewhere i could bet they use this in a fifa menu probably probably <laughs> it's like it, it's maybe one of those tracks that makes more sense in the context of a club or a dance music festival like you say andy but neither of those things i can say i have much experience with at 30 years old let alone eight <laughs> um yeah, and th- can I just talk about the music video briefly as well? Because it's it's unintentionally very funny. <laughs> it's set in some like vague dystopian future with Brian Adams appearing on a monitor that's shaped like a love egg, <laughs> interspersed yeah. with these ridiculous all caps statements like "uniformity is essential" and "happiness is an unproductive condition." <laughs> and like the main character, if you can call her that, she sees a vision of herself dancing in some sort of green screen utopia on a device that looks a bit like a... Is, I think it's like a Nokia thing, but it looks like a squashed Nintendo DS. All while, you know, Brian Adams wails at her, literally wails at her and does that reaching out with the heart thing where he looks like Alan Shearer with the haircut of young Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> and, <laughs> wow. Yeah, it's... It's like it's by far the most interesting thing about an otherwise pretty tepid dance track, which paved the way for thousands of more in the EDM movement a decade or so after this. Yeah, I think this arrives in the middle of a big boom for club music at the start of the two thousands, where the, there is a massive boom of like rave and trance getting into the charts in a big way and we're, i mean they may not all get to number one but i'm thinking like hard style acts like scooter and ultra beat and a few others that kind of crop up and it, it i think they're all kind of backed by like ministry of sound clubland three and <laughs> or like going to the gym and hearing it and then you know like it's one of those like i think it's one of those tunes there's there's a lot of these songs up until about sort of like 2007 and then there's a bit of a drop off and they never really come mm. back where it's like I work all day, I work all week and then I go clubbing on the weekends kind of, you know, like I think the death of it was probably hard fire living for the weekend. Oh um, God. That was probably the last one where it felt <laughs> geared towards like this kind of, you know, um, what is it in the thick of it with it? Jeff Average. Because um, yeah. I had a pop a few pills and I go DJing on the weekend because I'm a single mum and like and it's <laughs> it feels like the la- this feels like the beginning of that wave that kind of dies out by sort of like 2006 seven. Um, I imagine this was really big in the clubs. This feels like a big Friday night kind of tune to me, mm. um, but not Friday night while you're getting ready. Like um, I got a feeling Black Eyed Peas. It's more like Friday night. It's just about midnight. You've been in the club for about an hour and a half. 
you know, there's the, you know, somebody's passing something around, you're all having a good time, and if, then, of course, you'll go and buy this because it reminds you of those happy experiences that you, you have with your friends. I think that the commercial power of, of the club scene is, is probably at its height at this point, I would say, yeah. because... EDM, as much as it's dance music, that's the festival scene in my in my head. I associate EDM with festivals, whereas mm. I associate stuff like this with with nightclubs. It has that kind of neon light amongst you know, like it, it's completely pitch black, but you've got neon lights shining out from the DJs um, up near the uh, at the podium, up near the DJs podium, and like you, you can sort of see your friend through some pulsing shadows and silhouettes and stuff like that. Um, it's decent, I think. It gets a thumbs up from me, just about. Brian Adams is just about the last person I'd expect to appear on something like this. Uh, you know, his voice, to my ears, has always kind of sounded a bit a bit springsteen light. Well, that's Brian Adams all over. Um, quite scratchy and rough, uh, but he sounds kind of at home here. Does sound a bit underwater, um, but it means that he blends in with the song okay. I think what probably got this to work for casual audiences, not just because it's Brian Adams' name on it, but I do think that lead synth melody when it comes in, when it fades in for that first time, there is a bit of a, there's a teeny rush of anticipation, especially when it resolves around that fourth time and it's got that slightly different variation, because it goes from going dun 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 and then on that last time round it goes and it's just something to listen out for and it's just a hook um but i think like you two yeah my my main criticism though that means that it only gets a slight kind of thumbs up is that once you've heard the first 90 seconds that's kind of it there's a little piano line that appears in the background like towards the end, but it's not enough to make you think, oh, this is a new section or a new idea or something. It's very repetitive without really earning that constant repetition. I feel like Brian Adams probably was in the studio for an hour doing his vocal parts, if that. <laughs> um, I'm just picturing, like, Krusty the Cow and, like, you know, coming in and doing all his lines. Like, bada bing, bada bing, Love from a professional kid. <laughs> but, yeah, it's it's okay. I, I, I totally agree with what you two were saying. I think I just dislike it to a... Le- I, I like it. I don't have as much of a problem with the, 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 the issues I have with it. They're just kind of... You know, I think if this was on, I wouldn't turn it off. Mm, but fair enough. I don't think I'd go to it first. Just yeah. one, that makes what, sense. Just to bookend my earlier comment. So when you're gone, by the way, because I was wondering about that. When you're gone came out in 1998, made it to number three, um, oh. and the number one that week was Believe by Cher, which is absolutely fair enough. So yeah, yep, I'm fine with that. And number two was Hard Knock Life Ghetto Anthem by Jay Z. Um, oh, but yeah, no shame in losing to Cher, as we all say. Yeah. Anyway. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'd say um, just following on from your comment, Rob, about this being the start of that culture. It's actually, I'd say, it started a little bit before. Because have either of you seen the film Human Traffic with I um, no. No. Danny Dyer and John Sim? It's like this. Danny um, Dyer. Ugh. Y- yeah, honestly, I'd say go and watch that because it's the perfect encapsulation of what I imagine this song to be within the culture, which is, like you say, it's that work five days a week in a dead-end job, but you party on the weekends, and that gives you yeah. some sort of meaning. It's like that really depressing 
late 90s. Well, everything was supposed to be fixed, but was still miserable. Before we um, move on to that next number one, I just want to say, I don't, I don't know if this was necessarily... Um, I just want to qualify. Obviously, the, the rave culture goes back much earlier than this, but like, oh, of course, yeah. I think this might be the... Then again, I suppose you've got... The, the 90s is kind of littered with big singles, mostly from acts like Two Unlimited and Alice DJ and things like that. So... Mm. Maybe I'm a little wrong on that, but maybe this feels like the peak of it as a commercial force where it's like you could get like a string of really high charting singles around this point. I think it's a, um, I think it's a peak. Yeah, there'll be others. Yes. But it's a peak, yeah. yeah, for sure. Yeah, there's definitely more of this sort of thing coming up. Okay. All right, then. Next up is this. Okay, this is Bag It Up by Jerry Halliwell, released as the final single from Jerry's debut album as a solo artist, Schizophonic. This is Jerry's third consecutive number one after leaving the Spice Girls, after Michiko Latino and Lift Me Up reached the top of the charts at the end of the 90s. This was number one for a week, knocking Chicane and Brian Adams off the top, and it held off competition, which is a bit of a shame, from Blink-182's All the Small Things, that which is a shame. I would have yeah, preferred to go to number one. Um, when it was knocked off the top, it dropped down three places to number four and eventually left the charts after 14 weeks. Lizzie, what do we make of Bag It Up by Jerry Halliwell? Uh, just going back to that all the small things and yeah I do like that song but I feel like this is the deserving number one um, mm. because I mean this one's really grown on me since I first listened to it about a week ago I initially really struggled with it because of just how bright and sugary it is it's like drinking three porn star martinis in one go but yeah, I found myself humming this in liminal moments all week thinking about going for one more sip of the sweet stuff because it's it's big and it's stupid and infectious and I worry that listening to too much of this might turn me into a fun person but I'm okay with that join <laughs> us like <laughs> yes <laughs> so like we're talking about this just after pride month about a week removed it really dates this episode again but I do think there's a note to be made here about not just the song, but also the video, and as we mentioned before, that Brit Awards performance. 
Oh my god, that Brit Awards performance. Yeah, because it's such a rarity for its time. Like, I think it's easy to forget that in 2000, this wasn't the common thing that it is today, particularly in kind of Western culture. Like, not only for its inclusion of the LGBTQ community, but also this overt celebration of kink and BDSM communities under that umbrella. Something which is still part of endless discourse to this day, every year, just like clockwork. But, like, kink and BDSM are both integral parts of queer history, which forge a connection to the history of sexual liberation that Pride was founded upon. And attempts to exclude it from Pride risk demonising consenting adults who just want to celebrate their own individual queer identities without looking to cause harm and offence, just like everybody else at Pride. So yeah, full credit to Jerry and the video director, Dawn Chadworth, neither of whom we've seen for the last time, by the way, for being this unapologetically blatant about it, no doubt opening up a world of self-discovery for a lot of young pop fans at a time when you know, Section 28 was still in effect, and mass culture wasn't particularly bothered about inclusivity. I think I think it might be it might even be the best post Spice Girls single if we count this as post Spice Girls because they're technically still together. Yeah, this is a funny episode for me, Ari. Whether this is mid or pro Spice Girls. Well, it's mm. after Jerry's left. This is post Spice yeah. Girls for her. Yeah. Yeah, this mm. is. I'd say this is during the decline, but it's not like a, a you know a steep decline. It's just a kind of maybe we're thinking of wrapping this up, and we do see him later in the year though. So yeah, uh, yeah, very really gorgeously put, Lizzie. Uh, Andy, yeah, you uh, you have been singing this song's praises to us ever since uh, ever since the episode came up so have at it well what can I say I've always wanted a song that continually reminds me not to drop my baby just what everybody needs <laughs> it's I mean I, I really really appreciate your your comments there Lizzie as well that yeah I mean in all fairness to Jerry Halliwell she is actually a, you know a very Jerry Horner now I should say actually she is um, a very very in your face ally of the community to the point where absolutely it's, it's, to the point where it, she's such an ally it gets a little bit cringy sometimes uh, bless her but it, yeah. uh, honestly she deserves the credit for that and and the people behind the video deserve the credit for that as well it is one of those songs that is a much bigger deal in the lgbt world than it is outside of it um you hear this mm. song on canal street quite a bit um it comes up in my sort of playlists of gay parties and things like that it, this song does come up so I know and you already knew this song very very well um, I love it <laughs> I love it um, it's absolutely nuts um, it's 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 so in your face it's such a charm offensive it's such an assault on the senses that it's absurd it should be absolutely awful and in some ways it is a little bit awful but that to me is the definition of camp where it's incredibly in your face without worries about quality. It's enthusiasm over substance, basically. That is the substance of camp for me. And I love that. I love it. There's something about Jerry in general that I, she's got this very garish, very sexy voice that's very, um, very hard on the vowels, very, very sultry voice that just kind of is naturally there. She has a natural loudness to her as well. And the mad production of the song combined with her voice, it's a really perfect combination and it really helps sell it for me. 
like I say, I do acknowledge that objectively, perhaps, if there is such a thing, it's it's not very good. But I think the main <laughs> aspect of that is the, the lyrics. The lyrics are just terrible. The lyrics really, really are terrible. What does I know that this is the obvious point to make about this, but I'm still no, I'm still none the wiser of what does that main chorus line actually mean? Because Bag it up, don't drop the baby is like the bleakest line I have ever heard in a pop song. I, it surely <laughs> can't mean what it sounds like it means. It's just, what does it mean? Anyone? <laughs> yeah, I've uh, got no advice. It, can't, it surely Has can't mean. Jerry? It surely can't mean, oh, hold the baby for a moment so I don't drop it while I'm putting together drugs in front of my newborn child. I mean, to be fair, Spice Girls did this a few times. They, they've got a song, Never Give Up on the Good Times, that has like hilariously bleak lyrics at the start that's about this woman who's down on her luck, and it's like, oh, she's been thrown out, baby's on the way, she's on the dole, she'll probably die soon. You know, <laughs> Spice Girls do this a little bit, so maybe it's just that. Speaking of that Spice Girls influence, I think this song is very clearly inspired by Who Do You Think You Are? Um, I think it's got that kind of sound to it, high on the trumpet, sort of like a modern reimagined Motown disco, almost. Um, She's very much still leading with girl power. Um, So many little feminist shout-outs, so to speak, in this song. They're kind of um, just a bad case of opposite sex, and men are from Venus, girls are from Mars. She, of all the Spice Girls... She is the one who is most obviously, at this time, the one who is most obviously attempting to carry on the Spice Girls sound, attempting to carry on that vibe, which is Mm. interesting because she's the one that left first and the Spice Girls is still existing as its own own product right now. Um, But Jerry is very much inspired by the sound that she's already come from, I think. If you compare and contrast to whatever's coming up next I won't spoil that's very very different mm. and I do think it's interesting that Jerry is the sort of continuity candidate of the solo careers and she was very very successful it's easy to forget now that she was she was doing really well at first she's she trailed off a bit but I do think she does a really good job of carrying on that Spice Girls legacy she clearly knows her market she knows how to pin <gasps> it down and I think this song is just really, really fun and really enjoyable. And despite the fact it's not very good, I don't really care. It's just really fun. Yeah. Sorry, I gasped in the middle of that because it's just clicked for me. Um, so <laughs> this might be reading too much into it, but is is you, you know you said about don't drop the baby? Is is the baby a newly out person? Oh, it could be. Because, like, be. in the trans community, we have the concept of a baby tran who's, you know, someone who's kind of just come out or, you know, just exploring for the first time. Is that maybe a way of... I don't know. because I could I'm be. Kind of reading the lyrics and thinking, is it a way of, you know, bring this person into the community, but also don't be afraid to show them what you're really like? It could be. My, that That is a possible reading. The only other possible reason I got from it was maybe because there's a lot of um, girl power kind of material in this. It might be a really weird way of like talking about women balancing their lives with their children. Like, oh, come on, do stuff, but keep an eye on your child. I don't know. Maybe <laughs> something maybe, like that. Maybe. But your reading's much more interesting, so I'm going to headcanon that now. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I'm going to come in and pour a nice, huge bucket of cisgender heterosexual water. Just what everybody needs. conversation. <laughs> um, 
I think I'd like this more if I could hear 5% more of the bass drum and 5% less of the brass. Um, <laughs> the production on this is really strange. Um, produced by Absolute, who did a couple of Spice Girls singles, including Say You'll Be There, which has one of my favourite moments in all of 90s pop, which is that harmonica solo. Um, yep. I've, I've, like you both said, I think the song has absolutely heaps of camp value, which I'm never going to dismiss. It has grown on me a little bit as the week's of, uh, as the days have gone on since I've listened to it. Um, the production isn't like a nightmare for me or anything like that. Um, it's got a bit of pep to it. Uh, it's got a bit of a push and a bit of a kick. It's just, th- this isn't the song's fault necessarily, but you know when she starts and she goes like, I like chocolate <laughs> and controversy or whatever it is. I think, That's going to be my Tinder just... bio. I like chocolate and controversy. <laughs> controversy. <laughs> I think, I think it's kind of going for Prince vibes, but it ends up, um, Lizzie, you'll laugh at this. It kind of reminds me of, you know, Beach Boys Summer of Love. Oh, God. You know, the people all around the world in every nation like oh. to get, and it just, I mean, it's, it is leagues better than Summer of Love, but unfortunately, um, it does kind of remind me a little bit of Mike Love trying to be cool. About ten years before this, um, I, I think weird coincidence that you mentioned it earlier, Lizzie. Oh, that I God. think it's channeling "I'm Too Sexy" at the start. I think it's yes, that kind a of bit yeah, definitely, yeah. yeah, definitely. But again, it's "I'm Too Sexy." I think you know it's another one that's a pop song that's from that similar kind of area where there's a lot of camp value, and that takes it a long way. Um, I want to. I do want to give a massive shout out though to the ad libs at the end of this, which are hilarious the, the my favourite one is when she gets they're the, the trying to fade her out and so she just gets louder and louder she's like who's wearing the trousers now and oh yeah she goes right to the back of her nose for that one um, it's I, I do like this and I have enjoyed listening to you two talking about it and whenever I hear it in the future I think I will always associate it with just how much you two seem to enjoy it so um, <laughs> I'm, I'm fine with uh, I'm fine with giving this a thumbs up to be honest yeah going back to the Spice Girls connection as well it kind of scans with spice up your life yeah I like chocolate and controversy. Hey! He likes Fridays yes. and by company. Bag it up, don't drop the baby. Don't drop Bag the baby, it up, don't drop the baby. Wind him up and make him crazy. Whoa! <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, yeah, it's definitely one that I don't like as much as you two, but I've def- I definitely like it more than I did when I first heard it when we were doing it for this show. I'm, I'm going to make a confession in that I like it so much. I like it even more than Chocolate and Controversy. I, I like it so much <laughs> that I was going to put it forward for the vault, but I thought it's not going to happen, so I decided not to embarrass myself. I, I mean, I've said it now, so never mind. But I, I really... I, I've calmed down on it slightly because I realise it's not that good, but... I was thinking about putting this forward for the vault because I just I have so much fun listening to this. I really do. So, if anyone I, else wants to, I, I'm on board. I, I wouldn't support. <laughs> I, personally, I wouldn't support that motion. But Lizzie, what about what about you? Oh, I I do love it. I don't know if it's vault worthy because I think that has to be because I'm if we're going on. by numeric scores, I'm thinking like <laughs> nine and above. Ah, uh, no, there's just. I'm so, like I say, I've warmed to this a lot. My opinion might change. Well, in that case, what we'll do is we'll put it in a special little limbo area where at the end of the year, 
if there's any songs that were nominated for the vault by one person and didn't quite make it in because they didn't get the push from the second person to get a majority vote, we'll just reconsider in a few okay. months' time, and then... So it may get another chance, Andy. It I may won't, get I won't hold out hope. I won't hold out hope. I'm just getting carried away. We'll, yeah, <laughs> we'll bag it up, so to speak. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> All right, then. Our final number one of this week is this. Okay, this is Never Be The Same Again by Melanie C and Lisa Left Eye Lopez. This was released as the third single from Melanie C's debut album, Northern Star. And this is her first number one as a solo artist with her previous two singles both reaching number four, but it wouldn't be her last number one. More on that in later episodes. This was number one for a week, knocking Jerry off the top of the charts and holding off competition from Maloko's The Time Is Now, which is a little bit of a shame, I think. Um, and also Rob Thomas and Santana's Smooth. Um, yes, uh, when it was knocked off the top, it dropped down one place to number two and eventually left the charts after 16 weeks, which seems to be roughly the average number of weeks that songs are spending in the charts after being number one. Andy, what do we make of Mel C and Lisa Lopez? Well, first of all, um, just going back to that story um, that we had in the news at the very start of this episode about how there was a bit of drama on stage where Jerry didn't perform with the Spice Girls. And now we have Mel C knocking Jerry off number one. The drama at this time. Oh, I love it. <laughs> That's just something I noticed. <laughs> yeah. Um, in terms of this song, I, I, I really I really quite like it. Um, just picking up on what I was saying earlier, that this could not really could not be more different to what Jerry's doing. This is... If Jerry's going for continuity, then Mel C is going for doing something different. She's going for differentiating her sound 
from the Spice Girls and doing something. I really hate to use the phrase serious artist, but that's clearly what she's trying to do. She's doing something more, more sort of sonically different, something a little bit more alternative um, than she ever would have done in the Spice Girls. A lot of her solo music in general has a quite sort of mysterious mood, a quite sort of thoughtful mood to it, which is extremely pleasant, actually. I quite like a lot of Mel C's solo stuff. Um, I, I, I will say I have a bias that will never ever leave me. <laughs> um, I'm just going to say it uh, because there's no better opportunity for me to say this. When I was a child, Mel C was my imaginary friend. Um, <laughs> so I okay. just adored everything she did. It was weird because I saw her not physically, like based, not one on one, but I saw her on stage at Pride a few years ago. And it's like you know, like if you'd met a fictional character, like if you'd happened to meet Father Christmas or something. I'm like, oh my god, that's Mel C. Like I didn't. It's weird that she's real because she used to live in my head. Yeah, <laughs> I had an I had a gang of imaginary friends called the Sporty Kids, of which Sporty Spice was the leader. Um, so yeah, <laughs> so I'll always, always have a very special place in my heart for Mel C. She was like my idol as a kid. Um, Were any of the gladiators part of this group? Probably. <laughs> no, she was the only real person. Actually, she was the only real one. Uh. The rest of us were kids, and she was like our childminder slash superhero <laughs> who could solve crimes by the means of playing football and singing, basically. Um, Is she like, like Sporticus from Lady Death? <laughs> yeah, actually, yes. pretty much. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I, just to throw that in there, I do have a huge bias towards Mel C. Like, I just absolutely like have an affinity with her. Um, I do think that this, although it's a very pleasant song um, and it has a lovely main melody line to it, I think it outstays its welcome very slightly. I, I do think it is too long. Um, and to shorten it, perhaps controversially, this is where I might slightly be ruffling some feathers, I would actually cut uh, Lisa Lopez's um, section from this entirely. I, I think it's not necessary. I think it's a good example of a let's have a rap solo just because that's what you do. Um, I think it's only really there to add some authenticity, to add some kind of street cred to the song, because that's what she wants to do at this time obviously she wants to kind of be in with more serious people um i don't think it's necessary i don't think it really adds anything to the song but it's nice for lisa lopez to get number one at least um so i don't have a huge problem with her being there i, I don't think it's anywhere near as fun or as memorable as bag it up but it's not trying to be it's just a very nice song um that's pleasant in its own way so yeah big thumbs up and um yeah always got a lot of time for mel c yeah. Lizzie, what about you? It should have been Maloko. Damn it. <laughs> yeah. That song is aged like a fine wine. It's a gorgeous song. Go and, go and listen to that. Um, <laughs> okay, anyway, this song um, is perhaps not helped by the fact that another Spice Girl has appeared on this episode with a fun, provocative single. But I'm sorry to say, I didn't really get much from this one. Like, I even tried looking at it as a breakup song about the Spice Girls, perhaps about how what could have been like an amicable parting of ways between the groups turned into this huge media circus when Jerry decided to go solo and the rest of the group had to limp on while pop music was moving on from them in favour of new acts like Britney Spears and Christina Aguilera. But I guess that's probably a reach and what you're left with is a pretty standard issue 
late 90s four chord breakup song like okay it's better than um her her lead off single have you heard going down yeah yes i have oh yeah. it's it's horrible <laughs> it is truly horrible but yeah it, at least it's not that also um i just wanted to say about lisa left eye lopez like she does her best to inject a bit of life into this one but like you say, I don't think it really needed it, and it's also a real shame that this is her only UK number one appearance, and this song is one of her final UK chart appearances during a lifetime. Like, yeah, she has one minor hit in two thousand one with the Block Party, and that's pretty much it, which doesn't reflect her incredible success in the late nineties with TLC. Like, Waterfalls and No Scrubs—they're two high watermarks of. 90s pop mm-hmm. like two of the two of the greatest pop songs of that era and with digging on you and unpretty not much farther behind it seems a shame that this okay but not much more than that song is the only one that got over the edge so to speak mm. Yeah, I was kind of thinking about that when I was listening to it. Um, it's a bit of a shame that she didn't really get... Well, obviously, it's a massive shame she didn't get to do much else after this. But I feel like she could have secured a bit of a solo career, kind of similar to Andre 3000. You know where he doesn't actually kind of do anything? He just kind of pops up on somebody's album about two or three times a year. And everybody goes, oh, Andre 3000. Oh, yeah, there he yeah. is. And then he goes away again and you're like, oh. I wonder if he's ever going to release a solo album. And it's like, well, he's already done a solo album. It was called The Love Below, and you can mm-hmm. go and listen to it. It's it's there. Yep. Um, but, it, it, you know, like it's kind of like this less is more kind of approach that I feel like she was probably going to take. She did a couple of solo albums, but I don't know yeah, how successful they were, but it just felt like that was going to be her career, where like, she would just kind of pop up, add a bit of cred, to a particular song and then go oh it's oh yeah isn't she good and then that would be that would be it and she would just remain kind of popular and ever present without ever being overbearing um but unfortunately you know well well really tragically everything got cut short um yeah the song itself i think she brings the goods with it um she has a really good voice lisa lopez um I get what you mean, like, maybe cut it because it's not absolutely essential, but I kind of can't imagine this song without that. Um, I think I think the radio probably... I would imagine the radio probably did cut it sometimes. Um, probably. Yeah. Or they maybe cut Mel C's second verse, or maybe they made the intro shorter or something. It, but, it is just a bit... Yeah. It, is, it is a bit beefy, isn't it? It's, it's close to mm. five minutes, yeah. I'm stunned that it is as long as it is. Yeah. Um... But yeah, second solo Spice Girls single of the week. Um, I know that they're not far from the end, but in my mind, this all happened after Holler. In my head, like this all happened afterwards. I mean, when we get to Holler later this year, I've got a lot to say about that. But I think that Mel C always had the best voice of the Spice Girls. And I think that she had the most interesting ideas to bring to the table after they were done yeah. as a solo artist, the, the next number one of hers that we're going to cover, either the original version that she recorded or that dance remix thing that hit the radios, really like both versions of those. I think with this, though, it suffers a little bit from a lack of momentum. And I think it doesn't really do anything 
after it doesn't try mm. to there's no yeah. huge dynamic shift for the chorus there's no. no sudden intervention of like a new instrument or a new melody or something like that it's just when it, by the time it gets to the chorus it just kind of eases into it from the verse and it means that everything feels kind of fluid and nice but by the time you reach like Lisa's verse it's like really need something different to happen now and it just kind of goes about itself pretty mid-tempo. It's nice. I think I prefer it to Bag It Up. And I think I prefer it to Chicane for this week. Um, I definitely prefer it to Madonna. Oh, oh undoubtedly, <laughs> um, yeah. But, yeah, it's it's fine for me. It, it's okay. I think it's all right. Um, I kind of have nice memories of it, um, especially Lisa's verse. But yeah, I can understand Lizzie. Like, I don't disagree actually with anything that you or Andy have said. I just think that like, like, um, like it was for Chicane. It's just it just bothers me less. I think. Yeah, I mean, this did remind me a lot of Genie in a Bottle. I had to check it wasn't the same producer. Hmm. Because yeah, I found it's got the tempo. same kind of yeah, same tempo, same sort of chord structure. But yeah, this this isn't Genie in a Bottle. <laughs> no. No, it is uh, genie in a bottle. It isn't. Yes. No. <laughs> Final note on this one. Um, not this song in particular, so it's not as excellent a stat as it could be. But on Mel C's album Northern Star, do you want to know who worked on this? William Orbit. Again. Ah. Yeah. Yeah. So sort of three out of five for this week. Quite quite remarkable, you, really. Yeah. You cannot keep him out of the charts at the moment. And it's not the last time we've seen him either. No. No. We're all just in his orbit. Yes. (laughs) Exactly, Andy. Exactly. Um, All right. So that's the end of this week's show. We have a song in the vault. We have opened up a pie hole. And um, we sort of have a song that's hanging around in limbo, whose fate will be decided when we reach the end of the year 2000. I'm sure both piles will get much larger as the uh, as the show goes on uh next time we'll be covering the 2nd of april through to the 13th of may in the year 2000 so another series of number ones that lasted about two seconds um thank you very much for listening this week we'll be back as soon as we can to hopefully bring you more hits 21 goodness thank you very much bye-bye see ya love vacation yeah i'll take you to